Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Uh, gee, I'm going to try not to cough. I was starting out to say hello and instead... <coughs> don't know what this is, but it might be a bit of an issue. Uh, welcome to the uh, last Monday in February of 2020. Uh, it is the 24th. Uh, and the sun's still out. Oh, my God. My God. <coughs> there have been five. <coughs> oh, shoot. <coughs> I'm sorry. It's something. I don't know what. Five uh, Five days of sun, which for Pittsburgh is, you know, pretty damn amazing. Okay, guys. Um, obviously... A lot to talk about since last we spoke. Uh, the Nevada primary, Bernie Sanders clearly uh, out in front of the pack at this very early stage in the process, but the anointing has already uh, begun. Um, and I'd like to share with you some some thoughts about a Sanders uh, candidacy, uh, a nomination and candidacy. Um, I think you know I'm fearful uh, that, but on the other hand, I'm fearful, and yet nothing is as it was, so it could be my fears are not well-founded. I have no idea. Um, I just know, there's a few things I know, I'll share them with you. Uh, and I think I shared this last week. Uh, a Wall Street Journal NBC poll that was released uh, just last week. Um, I'm sorry, excuse me. That was released just last week. <laughs> That's all of a sudden something weird happened on my computer. Between the coughing and the weirdness in the computer, I'm being distracted. Okay, so uh, last week this poll said the following, among other things. The most unpopular qualities for a presidential candidate, according to American voters who were questioned for this poll, I, I mentioned it before, they, you know, would you vote for a woman for president? Would you vote for a gay for president? The most Americans are increasingly more willing to vote for um, people that otherwise they would not have. But in this poll last week, the most unpopular qualities <clears throat> for a candidate were being a socialist, having a heart attack... <laughs> in the last year and being uh, older than 75 years old. It's like they were saying, I'll vote for anybody, but I won't vote for Bernie Sanders. What the hell? And yet, he almost won Iowa. He won New Hampshire. And now decisively won the Nevada caucus. But, again, those are three states. Um, 
I don't know. It's interesting the people coming out and reacting uh, to him, some with absolute horror and apoplexy. Um, others with unbridled delight, and I might add that some of those with unbridled delight are um, are in the White House, which worries me, and uh, in the Kremlin, <laughs> which worries me too. Um, that's a question I want to pose at some point. Why would the Russians, in their, um, you know, they're fiddling with our with our elections. Why would they decide that the candidates to help were Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders? I'm asking, what is their uh, thinking? Are they thinking, first of all, that they love Trump. I mean, they just want this guy forever. So are they backing Bernie because they think Bernie will lose, most likely to lose to him, thus keeping Trump in office, or because they also helped, tried to help Bernie last time around, but that help last time around was in order to deprive Hillary of the nomination and or election. Uh, not so much that they loved Bernie, but you gotta wonder um, if the folks who want Trump also want Bernie, that they might their calculations say he can't win a general election. I don't know. That's my that's my sense of what it is. You might have another. And as I said, since nobody knows anything anymore, nobody has a clue. Everything that once was uh, gospel regarding uh, national elections is because of Donald Trump and his uh, success. Uh, but I, I just want to share a few, um, you know, pundit types opining about it, coming from seemingly different places. Um, first, David Brooks, a uh, who used to be a Republican. I don't know what the hell he is now. He's a, sort of a man wandering in the desert looking for the truth. I mean, he seems like a, a I don't know. He's a man who who divorced late um, in in his marriage, his first marriage, and then took up with a a woman who's uh, you know old enough to be his daughter, and he's now reborn and and filled with energy. David Brooks and his column is why Sanders will probably win and he says look the guys who win are the guys who are good storytellers who come up with a kind of mythology in which they are the hero they are the ones uh, who will save you and that's bigger than telling a story they tell a story that that helps people get 
a grip on what's going on in the world and why they are so beleaguered or angry or losing a sense of security or whatever. In order to be this kind of a myth maker, you have to keep things pretty simple. <laughs> you know, you have to keep things simple. Don't get too wonky. Uh, there's, you know, there's villains and there's, there's the good guys and there's this real easy kind of story that you repeat and repeat and repeat. Donald Trump knew how to do that. He was a successful myth maker. I'm, I'm, I'm saying this is David Brooks' contention. Um, and his base, enough Americans, bought into this picture of this rigged system and uh, these politicians and, you know, a businessman will, will know how to handle things. They, they, they bought it. And Brooks says, you know, Trump's followers didn't, didn't merely believe the myth he was peddling. They ended up like sort of ingesting it, inhabiting it. Um, and it informs how they see the world. It informs what they're willing to accept as truth, as fact, no matter what their lion eyes are, are telling them. So Trump can get his facts wrong for these people as long as he gets the myth right and he keeps that mantra repeating. They find comfort in the myth he peddled and continues to peddle. Bernie Sanders is also a successful myth maker. Rather than, you know, marauding Mexicans coming our way as the villain, he has Wall Street and billionaires, the rich, as, uh, as the villain. In that regard, I think he's more correct than Trump, by the way. Um, and obviously, neither Trump's myths or Bernie's myths are original. I mean, these are myths that have been tried before and with some success. But it's a very compelling myth that Bernie is peddling, especially to um, young people who see this sort of ravaged America in front of them and who are snowed under by debt and understand that their expectations are not as rosy as their parents were, as their grandparents were, as their great-grandparents were. According to Brooks, the reason Sanders is attracting people is he's the only candidate up there who's successfully selling a myth. I have called him a Johnny OneNote candidate, but see, that's th because he's the myth maker. He keeps repeating the same sort of basic complaint and over and over again, this is what's wrong, this is what's wrong. This is why you are getting screwed. And it's what Trump did with a different story behind it. It's what Sanders does. And it works. Um, 
According to Brooks, he says, you know, Bloomberg, Biden, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, they're all, you know, proffering good arguments of what they would do, but but arguments are not a, a myth, a compelling myth in which they are the uh, the heroes. Um, and Brooks credits uh, Sanders with being so successful with his sort of Johnny one-note campaign for the last five years where he's really gotten some attention um, with turning around a lot of people, a lot of Democrats who say, you know, he's absolutely he's right. He's right. So Sanders has induced large parts of the Democratic Party uh, to see through his eyes, to see things as he does, much like Trump did for his base. Brooks doesn't like any of this because he sees these kinds of uh, simple uh, solution, myth-maker, uh, hero types um, as being divisive and that ultimately they tear people apart. Um, he says men like Sanders and Trump, neither of whom have ever really worked with who have agreed to join a party, they take a party. Sanders is not a Democrat, but he's going to take the Democratic Party. Trump was not a Republican, but he took the Republican Party. I mean, Trump was all over the place. He voted Democrat, he voted Republican, it didn't matter. Neither man is willing to ever subordinate himself to some kind of team effort. Both have, I think, clearly shown that. Um... And according to Brooks, who of course doesn't like either of them, he says, uh, all they do is stand on a podium and bellow. Um, so these are things that these, these myth makers like Trump and Bernie um, don't have. They don't have flexibility. And I think that's true of Bernie, certainly true of Trump. They don't have really good listening skills. <laughs> I think that's true, too. And he says they don't have open-mindedness or basic human warmth. He sees Trump and Bernie as a bit of a, of a piece. So that's... David Brooks' take. And you get a lot of, te I mean, when you talk about Sanders' success at this point, of course you end up talking about Trump. Because in many ways, you're seeing the same thing in the rise of Bernie as we saw in the rise of Trump four years earlier. And here I'll give you another take coming from a different place. This is from a guy named Terry Sullivan who... Um, is a Republican operative, and he wrote this in today's Wall Street Journal. We've seen this movie before. A bombastic, septuagenarian, political outsider 
calls out a rigged system to the cheering masses. He leads all the national polls while the establishment candidates wage all-out war on each other. Meanwhile, the media dismisses his chances and an increasingly worried political establishment convinces itself this is only a fluke. That the worst possible case that can come out of this is a chaotic convention uh, that will ultimately nominate a more palatable mainstream uh, candidate. Well, that's what was happening in the Republican camp four years ago, and now look where it is. The exact same thing happening in the Democratic Party. This guy, writing, says, if there's one thing we all better had have learned in these last four years, is that old political norms are dead. Experts and pundits their predictions are no more than guesses based on the way things used to be. And he says media groupthink only made these outdated and misguided notions more stubborn. So he too sees Sanders as essentially the second act, the sequel to the Trump astonishment. Like Trump, he says, Bernie Sanders is leading an insurgent campaign, riding a nationwide wave of discontent as many Democrats no longer feel that the party represents their interests. And, this guy points out, he still manages to expand his support among more moderate voters, even though they disagree with some of his more extreme positions. This guy says, if I had a dollar for every voter I've heard say, I don't agree with everything Trump does or says, but I love that he has the guts to say it. And he says that Bernie Sanders benefits from that same kind of, you know, some of what he says, uh, uh, you know, his grumpy old man act drives me crazy, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, he's right. Generally, he's right. So here's this Republican operative saying it isn't policy positions that draw a lot of people to Bernie Sanders or to Trump. It's, it's their... Again, it gets to where it's their sort of their perceived authenticity. They're taking on, the, they're squawking and screaming about it's rigged, it's rigged, it's rigged. So this Terry Sullivan says Sanders is exploiting the same sentiments that Trump rode to the presidency four years ago. If Sanders' momentum continues, he could topple Joe Biden in South Carolina, where the two apparently are now tied. And if he does, it's hard to imagine how he doesn't end up winning the nomination. 
He says, if you feel like you're watching Groundhog Day, well, I think you are. Okay, so there's those. And then there's Charles Blow, who says this. Oh, this is a whole different thing where he was wondering why uh, the Russians wanted him. And he says, the Russians and Donald Trump seem to want Bernie to win the nomination. And that is worrisome. The Russians may well like some of Sanders' non-interventionist foreign policy because he, like Trump, is not into foreign intervention. Well, supposedly Trump isn't. Into foreign intervention. And the Russians like that because that leaves... That leaves the globe to them to uh, play around in. But it is just as likely that the Russian find, f Russians find Sanders to be the most destabilizing candidate. And as anyone who understands what Putin and the Russians are always up to, their favorite candidate is always chaos. Who will sow the most chaos and make Americans crazy and make them doubt everything? Well, that would be Trump and that would be Bernie. And Blow also thinks, as I do, that the Russians are also calculating that Sanders will be the easiest for Trump to defeat. Oy. So, there's that. And then you see Trump and what he's doing, and it's absolutely terrifying. And it becomes more and more imperative that he be voted out of office. <laughs> God help us. Um, he is now uh, cleaning, purging of anyone in the White House who is not a total yes man. Uh, is continuing apace and unapologetically. Um, what he's doing to our national security uh, team is frightening because he is throwing people out of that who have spent a lifetime learning how to understand uh, this frightening global game that is played by the big boys in the world and he's replaced them now with people who just will agree to everything he says and as you know Trump is totally totally disinterested in reality the current national security advisor to Trump is a guy named Robert O'Brien if you ask me in two days, it might be somebody else. But maybe not. This guy might have staying power because he is one of Trump's parrots. And he, it is said, convenes meetings of the National Security Council at the White House 
by often distributing printouts of Trump's latest tweets. And that is because he is telling those officials sitting around the table that this is what the president thinks and we better find a way to think the same and to justify what he thinks. So Trump is totally, and this guy working with him, have upended the very purpose of the National Security Council, which is to tell a president things he probably doesn't want to hear. <clears throat> no one wants to hear the kind of stuff they gather up. It's scary. It's often unsettling. And Trump doesn't want to hear it. And so now he has a national security advisor who says to him, you see these tweets? That's what he wants to hear. So you figure out a way to make sure that's what he hears. And here's another thing that should make your blood run cold. This Richard Grinnell, the ambassador to Germany that he's now chosen as the guy who oversees all of the uh, intelligence agencies in the, in the country, has hit the ground running. He's the acting, uh, acting head of national uh, security. And he chose as his number two after ousting a guy who had been doing this kind of work his entire life and understood how things work, Richard Grinnell, the new head, of course, threw that guy out, an expert, and brought in in his stead another expert. But this guy is an expert on Trump conspiracy theories. I kid you not. One of the first hires of the new intelligence, National Director of Intelligence, is a guy named Kashyap Patel. And guys, I don't know if you know that name, but you might, because this guy is the key aide to Representative Devin Nunez. Former chair of the House Intelligence Committee, constant peddler of crazed Trump conspiracy theories. And in fact, his aide, Patel, is the one who was always, well, in fact, he was put in, tut, in charge of something called Objective Medusa. And his job was to look into the FBI and whether or not its investigations involving the Trump campaign um, violated, their, violated the law. So you've got a guy now in... in I, I mean... You know what? You don't even want to know. 
you, you, you know, it's, it's as much a nightmare as it could conceivably be. And actually, this Grinnell guy is not going to stay there. Um, well, yes, he might. Here's how Trump pulls this off. He kicks out the former acting intelligence, director of national intelligence, and he installs this Grinnell as now the current acting director. But for him to continue in that position past March 11th, Trump must formally nominate someone else for that job. And while that person is going through the vetting process, through uh, whether or not the Senate will confirm that person, then the acting guy, Grinnell, gets to stay for another six months if it takes that long, and then, if you still want him, you put another name up. This is, a, this is Trump absolutely flouting all of the rules and laws designed to create congressional oversight over the executive branch. So if Trump sends a nomination to the Senate, it would, under federal law, allow Grinnell to stay on for uh, at least another six months. And then you can continue that process keeping these acting people who never have to face congressional approval. However, this is the Senate that Mitch McConnell runs, so why they worry about whether or not Grinnell could even be signed off on, I don't know these Republican senators march in lockstep, as we found. I rewatched um, the Academy Award-winning documentary American Factory uh, last night. You've got to see that if you haven't. It is chilling. It is chilling, and it's a clear picture of where America is probably heading in terms of getting its clock cleaned by autocratic countries and uh, and their terrified uh, citizens who do things Americans wouldn't do, like march in lockstep. The um, you gotta watch it. I'm telling you, the Chinese taking over this factory in uh, in Dayton, Ohio, and the condescension they have for us is really eye-opening. And some of an understandably correct condens, uh, you know, I was gonna say condensation. Uh, you can see that they've studied Americans and they find us somewhat ludicrous. They find us absurdly self-centered and uh, that flattery will get us to do just about anything. They see us as they see Donald Trump easily manipulated 
they don't comprehend for a minute our sense of personal freedom. They find it astonishingly absurd. They certainly don't believe in workers' rights. The thing about this that is so astonishing as I watched it again is China is supposedly a communist nation. Last time I looked, commies, <laughs> at least commies in this country, were the ones who were most into workers' rights, right? So that the unions were suspected of being, you know, infiltrated with communists. Well, here's these commies, the Russian, I mean the Chinese, who come to this country and they are so anti-union, it's they will, they openly fire anybody who shows any, any desire to unionize. So how is it now that the communists, the Chinese, are against workers' rights in every way and because they're an authoritarian country? And authoritarian countries can't be letting the people, the workers, organize and have a voice. They cannot allow it. It's in, no, sorry. So isn't it interesting that so many of the people who support unions in this country tend to be lefty socialists? And yet the iteration of communism, China, Russia, these other nations do not allow, <laughs> do not allow the very things that drew Americans initially to the idea of Marxism. It is mind-boggling. Here's another little scary thing you might have missed. So the Russians are up to their tricks. They're doing their thing. Uh, they've been experimenting with how they're going to uh, screw up our elections this time. And uh, our uh, intelligence agencies, at least as much as they still exist, have, um, have seen that the Russians seem to be uh, reworking their playbook a little bit so that their intervention this time around is not going to take necessarily all the same forms it did in 2016. Um, they're using Facebook apparently and other social media a little differently. Uh, in 2016 they impersonated Americans you know with these phony they, they stole Americans' pictures and said, the, and, and drew up these uh, totally bogus accounts. Um, that's not what they're doing this time, apparently. What they're doing is they are working to get us, really, to just spread their disinformation uh, through social media so that it's not the Russians doing it, it's us doing it. This is perfect Russian kind of... Uh, oper operation to make us take ourselves down. They're working too this time from servers that are located here in the United States. Four years ago the Russian servers were over there. Now they're, they're actually here 
in the United States. And you know why? They're just, wow. Because American intelligence agencies, the CIA and others, are prohibited by American law from operating inside the United States. So while the CIA can go after these Russians when their servers are over in Russia, if they're in the United States, by law apparently, the CIA has to say, oh, we can't. So the Russians can be here, but the CIA can't. These are all our protections and laws being turned around on, on ourselves. They think the Russians might be using some ransomware this time, uh, debilitating uh, some local governments, uh, uh, damaging uh, po possibility some voting uh, systems or registration databases uh, by doing that. Uh, so... And, and one of the main goals, and it's already so successful, it's ridiculous and just continues to be, is of course to undermine American confidence in our uh, system. And if you find an American now that like believes that this country is working well and that our systems work and all that kind of stuff, man, that's like, a <coughs> that's like finding the holy grail. There aren't a lot of Americans out there who think things are working right. Uh, so there you have it. Also, it is suspected that Grinnell was put um, in this position to slow uh, the pace of, 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 of investigation on election interference. So in other words, essentially doing, co Jesus, creating cover for the Russian interference uh, effort. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, enough of this. My favorite story, I have a few over the weekend, was the Zamboni driver. Are you, are, are you aware of that? He's prob I probably are. Um, but this is, I just love stories like this. So this is at a, a National Hockey League game. It was uh, the Hurricanes, that's in Carolina, uh, against the Toronto Maple Leafs. And um, both of the Hurricanes uh, goalies uh, were injured. Now some of you who are real fans know that that can happen and that there is, in the NFL, um, standby emergency kind of backup goalies. It's a guy who's told you stay there. Odds are you're never going to have to come in, but uh, it could be. And we'll suit you up and you'll have to go in. And that happened uh, Saturday <laughs> to a 42-year-old guy who drives the Zamboni. <coughs> He's called in to be the... Um, he suited up. And um, he had an abysmal second period, but he rallied in the third, and he was blocking shots, and they won the game. 
So I guess he set a whole bunch of records. He was the oldest rookie to win his first, uh, his first uh, something like that, his first game. I don't know. I, um, he said, I was confident until I hit the ice. <laughs> then I got terrified. And he said that one of his, one of the team after he was, he was letting, they scored like three goals on him or something right away. And one of the uh, Hurricane players, you know, came up to him and said, hey man, just relax, have fun, have fun. We got your back. It's okay. And um, he said that helped. He thought, okay. And they won the game. So he's he's going to be able to keep the shirt he wore. Actually, a shirt with his name on it is already a hot item. Um, he had wanted to play professionally, but he had a kidney transplant 15 years ago, and that pretty much did the job. But he's he drives the Zamboni truck, and he does. I mean, just so you know, it's not like they pull the Zamboni driver off. This Zamboni driver also played as, a, I mean, serves as a, as a practice goalie for some lesser uh, teams as well. So it's not like he's totally, um, not like pulling me out of the stands or something like that. But I love that. The 42-year-old Zamboni driver. Yeah, gotta love it. And uh, what else do I have here? Let's see. Um, oh, the other one, I mean, this is sort of sad, but because he's dead, but he got killed. But Mike Hughes, did you ever hear of that guy? Mad Mike Hughes. This guy supposedly thought the earth was flat and he was going to uh he was gonna prove it by rocketing himself up far enough to take a picture. <laughs> well, uh his homemade rocket, it did go up, but after about two seconds of it going up, you see this big um, parachute fall to the ground. That's a bad sign because that parachute was supposed to, I guess, help him get back down. And then he keeps going up, and then a little bit later, he comes down and kaplooey. He, he was killed. Now, here's the thing, though. This guy was killed, uh, but... This was being filmed for uh, a new television series uh, for the Science Channel. Now, excuse me, how would a thing called the Science Channel be filming a guy who's rocketing himself to death so he can take a picture to show that the Earth is flat? That's the Science Channel? It's owned by Discovery Channel. So just you guys who like eat up some of these shows that are on those, understand this. This ain't science. The launch, it says, that killed Hughes was supposed to take him 5,000 feet into the air. That's according to the Discovery Channel. And uh, he had said it was only the first step towards an even more ambitious goal in space exploration. 
He is in the Guinness Book of World Records uh, for the uh, longest ramp jump in a limousine. Don't even ask. I mean, so he's a, you know, a daredevil. Uh, but uh, the flat, the flat Earth thing, is what was driving him of late. Anyway, he is now late. Um, that's the end of him. Uh, also, just want to quick uh, mark the passing, as long as we're of um, a pretty amazing woman who came of age here in Pittsburgh and uh, became a uh, internationally recognized model and uh, lifestyle guru, and that is B. Smith. Beautiful, beautiful woman. Um, she, it's just so sad. She was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in her 50s, and uh, she sure packed a lot into her life though. Uh, her dad was a steel worker and um, I'm not sure what high school she graduated from but she worked at the Pittsburgh airport for TWA for a while when she was a kid and um, man she just went on to, the, the New York Times obit says this about her uh, from early childhood, she was a whirlwind. She says, I inherited a paper route and I sold magazines. I had lemonade stands. I was a candy striper and into fundraising. Uh, her, she, her father was a Jehovah's Witness and she would go door to door with him selling copies of, you know, The Watchtower and Awake. And, and she said that was really important for her because she learned how to engage people and how to talk to people. Uh, because she was black, they wouldn't let her into the future homemakers of America chapter that she had wanted to get into. So she decided, fine, screw you, I'll start my own home economics club, and she named herself president. So this is a woman who, just don't get in my way, okay? Uh, she modeled for, I think, Kaufman's or Sachs here for a while, and then she got a big break, uh, Ebony Fashion Fair, and then the Wilhelmina uh, Agency, the big, big prestigious model agency. But she wasn't content to just be a model, to be the second black woman to appear on the cover of Mademoiselle. She, she sang in nightclubs. She tried to um, start an acting career. And then she ended up writing a series of books on entertainment and cooking. She had a syndicated weekly television show. Uh, she had a bedding and tableware line uh, at a collection for Bed Bath & Beyond. Uh, she had a furniture line for Lazy Boy. I mean, this is a woman that could not be stopped. Born Barbara Smith, B. Smith. She changed her name later. Just a a dynamo, a beautiful dynamo who never got the memo that she couldn't. So that is, uh, wow.
It's interesting how sometimes people who have that kind of energy and that kind of drive seem to almost know they're not going to have as long a life as others. They pack it in. I've got a good story for you here. I heard myself use the word parrot. Oh, I said that somebody was one of Trump's parrots. But I have a story about a real parrot that I want to share with you. And this parrot's name is Frankie. And uh, Frankie's a New York City parrot. I mean, he doesn't live. He lives with his family in New York City. And um, his uh, owner the guy was taking him had to take him to the vet and and he was uh coming back from the vet uh in Manhattan on 2nd Avenue and 60th Street to be exact uh carrying Frankie in this little you know zippered carrying thing and Frankie damn it he managed to unzip the zipper and he flew out of the carrier. And he initially just, he flew out and then landed on his owner's uh, shoulder, which is one of his favorite places, I guess, to be. But the owner freaked because he didn't want to hang. And he went to try to grab Frankie, which sort of freaked out Frankie, and Frankie took off. So Frankie was loose in Manhattan um, and the woman who's writing this is uh, I guess a New York Times reporter and it was her husband who unfortunately lost Frankie and he came running home to tell her she comes running out of uh, the place and they they start just running up and down the streets calling Frankie um, I, I'm just going to read her her thing here now because it's such a such a great story um, first of all she says birds raised by humans have absolutely no experience outside they don't know how to feed themselves they don't know how to stay away from predators Frankie must have been terrified her flying skills had been dampened because she lives in an apartment I mean she was used to you know flying from the couch over to the table uh, she was uh, anything too long or like hovering in one place would wear her out. Um, so she is running all over and she goes, uh, I'll pick it up here. Back on the street, I shouted her name, Frankie, Frankie. I leaned into a bar. Uh, Did a bird come in here? I asked. No, the bartender said, as if that's a common question, I guess. You, somebody blows into the bar and says, did a bird just come in here? The bartender, uh, no. And no, the bartender said, orange, loud, uh, probably asking for food? <coughs> no, says the bartender. <coughs> she says, I wrote my number on a napkin just in case Frankie did show Um, after a block, and she, she's running here, running there. She's checking out the bridge near their house, uh, uh, thinking he might have gone up to the top of the bridge. 
Um, and then, she says, after a block and a half, I heard Frankie screeching. She was perched about 30 feet up in a tree in a backyard between two tenement-style buildings. The back fence was topped with razor wire, and there were coils of it um, in some of the branches of the tree. Uh, we couldn't climb up there, so we couldn't just go up and get her. And when Frankie saw us, she started screeching and leaning forward, shaking her shoulders in a motion I knew well. It meant, I want to fly there, but I can't. Please, come and get me. We called 911, hoping firefighters would come. Imagine New York City firefighters. Excuse me, there's a parrot in a tree. So 911 said, uh-uh, nothing doing. Call 311. So she called 311, and the operator, she says, did not seem to understand what was wrong. The operator says, a bird in a tree? That sounds okay. <laughs> no, no, you know, no. So the owner's trying to say, no, no, you know when someone has a cat stuck in a tree and the firemen have to come and rescue it? Oh, it's not a, it's a cat in a tree? She said, I hung up. After an hour of hesitation, Frankie tried to fly. She took off and headed in our general direction, she said, but she aborted the mission. She flew in a little loop that took her higher and then vanished into the gray sky. Anyway, I'll make the long story short. She ends up, hours later, finding her again on the top of a building. We heard a screech somewhere high above me. She was perched on a green fence on a rooftop looking down at us. Don't move, I yelled. And that's when she was able to uh, get Frankie. So I just wanted to share that, uh, <laughs> that very New York story uh, with her. Um, and the funny thing is, as this woman had this Frankie, because it says here a few years earlier she had appeared on the roof <laughs> of our East Village apartment one summer evening, a brilliant colored bird happily chewing on a pizza crust that one of our neighbors had given her. We assumed she was someone's pet, and we tried to reunite her with whoever had lost her, but no one claimed her, so we kept her. So, I mean, she's a little bit of an escape artist, old Frankie, but there, so Frankie, and what's funny is after I finished reading this, I looked at the woman's name, and her name is Emily Flitter. Isn't Flitter like, Flitter, like this, like a bird? Anyway. <coughs> is there still a caller there? I think we have a caller who's been waiting a long time. Hello. Hello. Yeah, hello. Go ahead. Hello. Lynn? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay. I'm hearing echoes, and it sounds like somebody else is on the line, and I, I thought maybe somebody was ahead of me. But anyway, isn't that Zamboni uh, story old story? No. I heard that months ago. My neighbor told me it. So mm -hmm. they must be doing like they do with the flash mob thing. 
finding the same type of story because I swear he told me it last year sometime. No, the same no. Same identical thing. Well, then it happened it again. It must be a newer one then. It's so a newer. So what we're having now is like when the guy comes home from the military, they have you know, they're, now they're going to reap. They're going to find another story just like the other one. That's what's going on there. Because I know I heard that story before. I knew the details. My wife told me it this morning. I said, no, I heard that months ago back when it was warm weather. <laughs> so No, this one did. This happened weather, but it was, uh, Saturday night. It in, wasn't warm weather, but it was uh, well, this, when hockey season was it. Yeah, but this happened Saturday I'm night sorry. at the Maple, yeah, well, this happened, Maple that Leafs Hurricane. Before. That's, not, that's not an old story. I mean, that story happened, but okay. somebody else did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It makes you think, where do they get this stuff? You know? Well, it's great, though. You, I like mean, you said, it happened. It's just a okay, great story either way. Say. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Bye. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Bye. Appreciate you hanging on that long just to say that. Um, uh, yeah. Okay, what else we got here? Uh, looking at your... Debbie says, hi, I agree with you on why the White House and Russia want Bernie. This is why our whole primary system is wrong. Why do these few states get to pick? We in Pennsylvania, no, we in Pennsylvania are so down the list, it's over by the time. We, are, we have no say. My choice is still Elizabeth Warren. I would like a woman president in my lifetime. Yeah, you know what? You'll get Nikki Haley. I'm 63. I don't think it'll happen. Oh, geez. No, I think it will. But as I'm saying, it might not be a, might not be a woman you want. Might not be a woman you want. That's my guess. Oh. What else I have here? I got. I mean, I got. I got. I got. Uh, Oh, that's too depressing. You know what? It's just too depressing. So Trump's over in India, and they're giving him a big, you know, big show. Uh, the president, that'd be Trump, uh, amazingly, um, was heard to say, of course, you can assume that whatever I'm going to tell you is a lie, because it is. Um, he says, Trump has repeatedly claimed that Modi, and this is before he went, this was this weekend, has guaranteed him a crowd of five to seven million people lining the streets to greet him. Then, a day later, Trump says, that's now ten million people. So he, he just keeps upping his own thing. So the reality is, because this, this now has happened, I mean, it wasn't even a million. It was a few thousand people. And they had, they had erected walls to hide the reality of the city, uh, the slums. And the, they scrubbed up everything and they created like a stage set because Trump's most, you know, comfortable in that kind of situation. And they, um, they had thousands... Thousands, not millions. They had thousands of uh, party loyalists drafted to stand there for hours in the baking sun to wave flags and cheer uh, for Trump and to fill the cricket stadium and all that kind of stuff. So it was just a... And this Modi, by the way, is just awful. 
and he's an autocrat. They, I mean, supposedly India is the largest democracy. It's, it's a democracy like our democracy right now, which means not. No, they're worse than us, but not much. So Modi and, um, and Trump are, are peas in a pod, two, uh, two autocratic uh, wannabes. God, we're out of time? We're out of time. <laughs> okay, we're out of time. All right, well, that's it, um, at least for today. I'll be back tomorrow. My sister Susan should be joining us. And God, it's still blue sky. I'm going out. I got to enjoy that while I can. See ya. <laughs>